And so I think looking back, if you want to measure things qualitatively, first off, you have to know at the beginning <laughs> what your baseline is, right? You have to yeah. define at the beginning, how, how are we going to measure success? Is it adoption? Is it engagement? Is it satisfaction? Is it the sales team closing more deals? You know, now, as I look back as a PM, like sales team closing more deals, isn't a user problem, right? That's, that's a sales team's problem. <laughs> right? And so, you know, as a PM yeah. now, I'm much more intentional about solving a customer's problem. And so once you know what that customer problem is, then you can go measure at the end, did I actually solve that customer problem? And you establish a baseline at the beginning. On today's episode, I got to chat with Felix Watson Jr., product manager at Microsoft. With Microsoft's product being used by so many companies, I was curious to hear how Felix approached validating solutions at scale and he was kind enough to join the pod to discuss. And as an added bonus, Felix shared some killer advice for engineers looking to transition into product management, as well as how product managers can work more effectively with their engineering counterparts. Welcome back to Lessons in Product Management. Let's get started. Hey, Felix, welcome to the podcast. Hey, John, thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure having you, man. So, um, to kick things off, could you give the listeners an introduction of yourself and what you do and maybe what you're working on today? Absolutely. So my name is Felix Watson. I'm a product manager at Microsoft, currently working in the Azure organization. My background is actually in computer engineering. So I got an engineering degree, worked as a software developer for about five years. Um, after about four or five years is when I first learned about product management, just through some of the projects I was working on. Uh, one was really interesting. I was actually working on these giant network switches that my company sold to these big telecom companies around the world uh, to build up their data centers or, for example, the infrastructure of a, of a country, for example. And so in one project, the Brazilian government was actually beefing up their network infrastructure to help meet streaming demands for the World Cup. This was back in 2013, 2014, when the World Cup was in Brazil. Yeah. And, you know, just learning about that use case got me so much more excited about my job as a software developer that I started asking questions like who's closer to the customer and understanding their needs, um, how they use our technology, what's the impact on the business, you know, these types of questions were really interesting to me. And that was the first time I heard about product management. Uh, and so that led me to go pursue an MBA at UCLA because I found out that was a common path for some people to get into product management. And fortunately, it worked out. So since then, worked at Microsoft two and a half years, started off in the Dynamics 365 organization, working on various business apps. Uh, we had an HR app, we had a marketing automation app, we also had a sales um, automation app, like kind of working against Salesforce, for example. And uh, yeah, I primarily built the AI and analytics features across these different suites. And uh, it was a yeah, really, really interesting time. But like I said, now I'm in Azure and I work on the customer support experience end to end uh, for customers. So when they have issues with cloud services, they go to our site, they file a, a complaint essentially. And then on internal side, we have these uh, you know, highly technical support engineers. They troubleshoot issues across the Azure cloud. They're, they're you know, very knowledgeable, uh, very well-paid uh, support engineers. And um, you know, it's interesting. I build tools that both customer facing and internal facing for those support engineers. Okay. Very cool. So there's a couple of things that I want to pull out of, out of the intro there. So one, um, you transitioned from software engineering, and I know there's a lot of folks that are listening who are trying to do that same thing. So, yeah. you know, getting an MBA is something that, that helped you. Um, but what would be some advice looking back kind of in retrospect for software engineers who are making that transition into product or trying to? Uh, yeah. What are some things they should know or be aware of in, during that transition? 
Absolutely. I think that what they should know primarily is that a lot of times what you do as a software engineer, you can find ways to build or demonstrate the skills needed for product management in that, in that role itself. I can give you an example. As a software engineer, one of the things I discovered was our team was having a lot of challenges around test automation and fixing bugs, right? It would take us a long time to kind of find out, you know, what's the real source of this bug? We had a lot of like legacy code that we kind of took over from an older team and it was, you know, really old code. And so it took us a while sometimes to find the issue, fix the issue. And so I thought to myself, you know, we have all this automated testing for the new code that we build, but we don't have much automated testing for our old legacy code base. And so I just came up with this idea with two other engineers and I said, you know, hey, what if we built an automated testing suite for our legacy code? What if we use that to automatically find bugs and issues, help us zero in on the time to find these problems, make that much quicker, and then we fix problems much faster, right? Mm -hmm. And so I ended up convincing two other engineers to work with me on this project. We kind of planned it out. We figured out what type of use cases we needed. Uh, and then in our spare cycles, in addition to our regular job, we just kind of slowly built this testing suite. And when we were done, I brought it up to my manager and, and we kind of figured out that we reduced defect resolution time by about 30%. Wow. And so you can imagine as a product manager, identifying a problem knowing who your customers are. In this case, it was us. So it was kind of relatively easy to do that. But like the ideation phase, the planning phase, executing, and then ultimately being able to measure the business impact. I mean, this is this is something that's on my resume today for my engineering days from showing like influence without authority, right? Yeah. Those product, those uh, engineers didn't work for me. So I think, you know, study the job descriptions, study what the jobs are asking for, and then find ways that you can demonstrate those skill sets on your current job. And maybe even work with your manager for help, right? If it's like, hey, this is a skill I really want to build. You don't need to tell them you want to switch into product management or anything like that. But you can just say, hey, I really want to gain this skill of, uh, you know, working with others, collaboration, et cetera. And just find ways that you can bring those things to life in your current job. And that'll really help you try to make that transition. Very cool. That's, that's great advice. And I'm glad that you had the space to actually like take that on, right? Where um, I think we all have time, but the old adage is like, we all have time, but how we use it varies right but, but you guys identified a problem used time in your cycles or spare cycles to go and attack that problem and then ask for forgiveness versus permission and saying hey look look at this thing that we did and uh yeah. and, and saw the business results so i think it's really cool yeah and the other thing out of the intro was how how excited you got as an engineer when you knew like the, the thing that you were building and what it was for and like how cool that was, it like it got you excited, like more excited about your job. So yeah. how, how important is it for the PMs listening who the engineers might not be as close to the customer or a little, little further removed from it to like, I know there's debate right now, right? Like, do you bring engineers to customer calls? Do you want to take them off of what they're trying to do? But at, at yeah. minimum, how important is it for your engineering team to understand like the use case or the, the real customer stories about what, what you're trying to actually accomplish? That's a great question. And, you know, to answer it in short, it's extremely important. <laughs> what I find is that engineers I work with may be interested in that to varying degrees. And so one of the things that's my job is to, one, always have an open invite to my engineers to attend these types of things, but then also be open to the fact that not all of them are going to be interested. Now, why it's important is really, I would say there's two reasons. There's two main reasons. One is, as a part of a product management job, it's your job to help bring energy. You're a leader. You bring energy and clarity to the problems you're trying to solve. And a lot of that energy 
comes with deep empathy with the customer. And so by bringing customer uh, engineers in on those calls, you can hear the pain directly from the customer really resonate with what the challenges are that they're facing. And then two is, you know, and, and this is partly to me, but also just engineers in general, they're extremely creative. They're really close to the tech. Um, I don't consider myself, honestly, the idea guy. As a product manager, it's my job to bring clarity to what problem we're solving. And I work with really smart people on the design, the engineering side to figure out what the right solution is. So by bringing engineers really close to that customer pain, that customer use case, you let the creative juices that they have being really close to the tech, you know, thrive and shine, right? Um, they're going to be able to come up with solutions and ideas that are much more innovative than I would be able to, because they're close to the tech, they're close to the code, right? And so they're going to know the best way to implement uh, the solution. And so, you know, that's why I say, again, like creating that energy and really making sure you get innovative ideas, it's imperative that you bring those, um, those engineers on when, whenever you can, as early as possible, keep them involved in that discovery process. For sure. And I think that something you called out there kind of implicitly is, is really important to note in how, like as PMs, we should really focus on like owning that discovery piece and making sure that we're solving the, the right problems. But when it comes to the solution piece, you, I mean, spot on, like we, we got we to gotta work with our team because we have a lot of creative people to work with. Absolutely. So cool. This episode is sponsored by MentorMesh.io. Jay Taylor is the founder of Mentor Mesh and currently a staff PM at Twitter. Jay was able to break into tech and move his way up into product leadership for companies like Microsoft and Salesforce before going to Twitter and all without a degree. So if you're looking to get into product, Jay is going to show you how through the Mentor Mesh Career Accelerator, where you'll learn how to stand out in the job market and where you'll acquire the tangible skills and experience you need to get hired. Join the community for free at MentorMesh.io and accelerate your path to product with the MentorMesh Career Accelerator at courses.mentormesh.io. And you can grab both links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. So um, I know we kind of pivoted for a second from, from the initial conversation, but we, we did want to talk a little bit more about uh, validating solutions at scale. And so... Yeah. As I just said, it's really important to focus on discovery. We're going to go to the delivery part a little bit or kind of mm -hmm. that mesh point. So um, like when you get to the scale that Microsoft is at, where you have so many businesses and so many users within those businesses, is there like a, like a high level approach or framework that, that you guys use or that you use personally um, to start validating solutions with customers, right? So you, you've identified the problem, you have... Uh, some solutions in mind, you're working with your team, but like, what does that validation process look like? Absolutely. And I'll caveat by saying, you know, just from my personal experience, this is on two teams, Microsoft is huge. There's, <laughs> you know, a lot of different teams and everybody could do it slightly different. But what I find most generally is when you're trying to validate a solution at scale, there's, there's two things. One is a lot of times you do things that may not seem scalable um, at first, uh, to, to really get insights. So what I've, what I've learned is you, you tend to get the best insights from qualitative research. Um, you now you can double check those hypotheses and validate those things uh, with data, uh, but your qualitative research sometimes generates the best insight. So often what I see with solution validation, once you start having an idea of what the solution is, you want to figure out a way as quickly as possible, as cheaply as possible to put it in front of customers. And so there's a couple of different ways I've seen that happen at Microsoft. One is private preview. 
So you as a product manager may work with certain customers. Uh, I've worked with certain customers to say, hey, we're working on this new thing. We'd really love you to be kind of a pilot customer to give us you know, validation, maybe even build it with us sort of, right? Where as we're building it, we get your insights on it. We get your feedback on it as we're going. Now that's not the cheapest way often because it does require some code, but that is something I see very often as kind of this, this private preview. You have a, a ring of customers that you know um, are really interested and excited about the product. They, they're willing to try it out when it might be a little buggy, you know, things like that and get that early feedback to help you make sure it's ready, ready for general availability. The other thing is prototyping. So when it comes to prototyping, there's a couple of different things you could do, right? It could be, there could be some code involved. There could be, you know, just uh, kind of design mocks and Figma or, you know, some other tool. Um, those could be advanced that you can actually click through and they really feel almost like a real product or they could just be some screens, right? And so you use these prototypes, again, to get in front of customers. It doesn't mean you're going to get in front of hundreds. It means, you know, maybe it's five, maybe it's 10. Uh, so we use those as another way to validate. And then third, you know, you find ways to use other research tools, right? So this type of research is usually... Um, evaluative research. So you have, you know, some kind of prototype, you're trying to evaluate, you're trying to figure out, hey, what, what do customers think about this? And so you use tools like user testing. Now user testing can do a couple of different things, right? You can do unmoderated study where you can get 30, 40 people to kind of run through this prototype that you have, give feedback, or you can do kind of moderated where you, you and a researcher maybe go in and actually talk with somebody um, and have them click through and talk you through their thinking process and give feedback live like that. So I guess that was a long way to say, but you know, there's a couple of different things. And sometimes, like I said, it could be as much as actually building something and having private preview, or it could be, you know, some kind of, you know, not with code, but you use prototypes to get feedback. Cool. Uh, is there any like, thought around prioritization of which customers you go out and try to validate with? Absolutely. I think we definitely do our best to choose customers that are representative of the set that we have. So oftentimes it's as simple as your biggest customer um, because you, you know, you know, if it works for your biggest customer, then it'll probably work for your smaller customers. But then other times you really need to make sure you get kind of a spread. So just for as example, when we worked in HR, when I worked in the HR space, I built a tool for recruiters. And so, yeah, we kind of just chose our largest customers um, to validate and test with, the ones that we kind of already had a strong relationship with. We know they're willing to give us early feedback. Um, we we're able to target them uh, as, as to you know, prioritize those folks. On the other hand, when I worked in kind of the marketing automation space, and even maybe a little bit before that, we were just kind of like, getting uh, new ideas uh, or validating new ideas. We actually use user testing more and we tried to get a spread. So what we did was we, you know, we, we worked with a researcher to build a screener to figure out like, hey, is this the size of your company? Is this the industry your company is in? Get all those type of details. And then we would try to get, you know, um, a spread of different, you know, rep a representative sample almost um, that we would use. So it just depends on kind of what your needs are at that time. Sometimes you really want to get like a, a representative sample. Sometimes it's okay. It's maybe not the best approach, but it's okay to just focus on, Hey, these are our biggest customers. Uh, let's go to them and make sure that this works for them. That makes sense. And, and I can imagine that the, the number like the types of co uh, companies that use Microsoft products and uh, even that HR product probably varied wildly. Right. <laughs> and so, Absolutely. Um, 
So when you were able to get more specific, was it simply an approach of like, you know, which, what are the predominant industries that use this product and let's focus on like solving their needs or, or was it really like, hey, we know we solve needs for like a wide variety of customer types. Let's make sure we get like a, a cross section so we could really scale out the, the most important things. Yeah, I think that's a good question. So Microsoft, our approach um, sometimes, and I think the approach when I was in this space was we didn't really do industry specific solutions. We built platforms and we had a big partner ecosystem that would help maybe customize those tools or really specialize in certain industries. So whenever we did our kind of validation, we didn't really focus on specific industries so much as we tried to get a spread. Um, because like, again, our focus was on a platform um, and then having partners kind of expand. Now, I, you know, like I, I will say, I haven't been uh, in that space for, I guess, over a year now. But I think, you know, there's always differing approaches in the industry, right? And some companies are really focused on, you know, we really do well in the finance sector, for example, or we really do, well, you know, so I think, you know, depending on your company and what your strategic approach is, that'll kind of drive, um, you know, what you're trying to do. That makes sense. So when you're looking at validating solutions at scale, right, like, it's kind of a funny way to put it because with the qualitative aspect of things, you mentioned five or 10. Um, and if you have automated tools like user testing or something like that, you could get 30 or 40, but you're not doing like uh, a statistically like valid sample, so to speak in like strict statistic, yeah. statistical terms. So what are some of the risks that are involved when trying to validate solutions at scale from a qualitative standpoint? Absolutely. There are big risks. You know, I, I think, you know, one of the biggest failure stories I usually tell is when I was working in a recruiting space, I, as a PM, didn't do a great job of getting the right representative sample. So while I focused on some of the bigger customers, the truth is the majority of our customer base was on the smaller end. And while we did have success by me focusing on the larger customers and building something for them, when, look, when I look back in hindsight, I could have had much more impact sooner had I built a simpler solution that would have served our smaller customer base and then built up to that more advanced solution, right? And so that's one of the risks is that you limit the, I would say usability maybe of the product. Like if you, if you don't really consider a good representative sample of your customer base and you, you prioritize you know, with kind of really short and fast prioritization techniques and don't try to get a, a broad sample. So that's a huge risk. Um, that being said, I think, you know, it could have still been the right answer, like I said, to go for the bigger customers. Because in this example, I built a recruiting dashboard for our larger customers. It helped us grow our, um, our, our, uh, our revenue and customer base with like some larger customers that were looking to purchase our product. So it helped in that scenario. Um, but yeah, again, the risk is definitely you miss out on making sure that you're really building for your existing customers. And you kind of touched on this earlier, but like whenever you go to, um, I guess, measuring success, right? Yeah. Um, how do you how do you kind of blend that that balance of like quantitative data with qualitative, right? Because you, you've kind yeah. of validated the solution qualitatively. Now you're measuring quantitatively. Um, yeah. How do you leverage that quantitative data like after the fact? 
Absolutely. So I think, you know, the, the first thing, and like I said, what I would have done differently um, if I was to go back again is I, maybe I did qualitative with like the large customers, but I would have tried to back that hypothesis up with data using the quant. So I could look more deeply at our current customer base and really try to figure out, okay, I talked to some of our largest customers, you know, out of our customer base, what portion of our, you know, of our customers are this large. And maybe I would have learned like, hey, that's actually a very small fraction. And therefore I need to actually get another, you know, I need to get some smaller companies as well. So that's one thing you can do is you always, you know, you may get some qualitative insights, which again, I think qualitative insights are usually the most valuable, but then you double check that with the quantitative data. And then I think, you know, for me, again, what I would have done differently, um, you know, one of the challenges with this failure, I might as well just tell the story at this point. <laughs> um, you know, we launched this, this feature, which was geared towards larger customers. They liked it. They loved it. We got new customers signed on as a result. We uh, grew our revenue. All that stuff was great. But when I looked at the adoption metrics, it was a very small percentage, less than 10% of our customer base was actually adopting this new feature. And so that to me is when I look back as a PM, that was my, my biggest failure because I failed to think about ahead of time. Okay, yeah, how am I going to measure success? If I'm just thinking I'm going to measure this, this success by every, you know, all of our customers adopting it, then I would have taken a completely different approach, right? But I wasn't really thinking about that. I was mainly thinking about, hey, how do we go close? How do we help the sales team close more deals? And so helping the sales team close more deals, the sales team only knows, hey, the number one we're failing with some of these larger customers is because we don't have this one feature. So I went and built that for them, right? And so I think looking back, if you want to measure things qualitatively, first off, you have to know at the beginning what your baseline is, right? You have to yeah. define at the beginning, how, how are we going to measure success? Is it adoption? Is it engagement? Is it satisfaction? Is it the sales team closing more deals? You know, now, as I look back as a PM, like sales team closing more deals, isn't a user problem, right? That's, that's a sales team's problem, right? <laughs> and so, you know, as a PM yeah. now, I'm much more intentional about solving a customer's problem. And so once you know what that customer problem is, then you can go measure at the end, did I actually solve that customer problem? And you establish a baseline at the beginning. So, you know, I think that's the key with using the quant data at the end. The key is actually to define in the beginning what numbers you need to be looking at. How do you get that data? So then you already know how to get it and you just watch is it going in the right direction after you launch. Makes sense, and I'm so tempted to go down that path, but I feel like that's a whole different podcast episode of like it how do you is. how do you balance <laughs> solving customer problems versus sales team problems, <laughs> yeah. and the pressures that come with that from uh, from above. Absolutely, but, but uh, yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's great advice, and I do love the part where you called out like validating one against the other. Whether you're looking at quantitative data, uh, you might have some hypothesis from like why or, or what's happening, but validating that back with qualitative and then vice versa. Yep. So. That's good. Um, so for, for the PMs listening who are like just living off of quantitative data, I mean, like yeah. it's it's for years now, like big data, we need to be data driven, like hyper focused yeah. on data. Um, you know, with what you've had to say today, um, it, people are probably listening saying, okay, I should probably start talking to customers if I'm not already. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So what, what is that good first step? Because I know you mentioned a lot of different options, but what, what would you recommend as kind of a first step to get started? Gotcha. That's, that's, you know, that's a tough question. It does depend on a lot of things. It depends on your mm -hmm. company, your resources, et cetera. But I guess the one thing I'd say just to start is like, you know, quantitative data can often tell you what, but the qualitative data is what tells you why, right? This is where you really get those insights. So that's why it's so important. And so as a PM, 
you sometimes just have to be scrappy, right? You, you as a PM have to take ownership of figuring this out. Now at Microsoft, I've had the benefit of having research resources, people on my team that are experts in research that can, you know, I tell them, hey, this is what I'm trying to figure out. This is the, not the problem I'm trying to solve, but the problem I'm trying to discover. And they can actually guide me and like, oh, well, for this, you need a survey. For this, you need a focus group. For this, you need one-on-one interviews, right? They're the experts. I, I wouldn't even be, I wouldn't begin to pretend to like know exactly how to gear, like guide you in that way. But I think that's one thing. Consider your resources. If you have the resources to bring on a research expert, definitely do it. <laughs> definitely do it, right? Bring on a researcher, talk with researchers at your company, you know, figure that piece out. The other thing is really make sure you have a good way to get in touch with your customers. And so there's there kind of two ways there, right? You may want to think about building some kind of customer program where customers may be incentivized to to get to give you feedback uh, qualitatively. So for example, maybe they get access to features early. You find those customers that are really excited about your product and they want, you know, they want to help guide your roadmap, for example. They want to inform it. So that's a perk for them, right? To actually be that person. So you build kind of a some sort of customer program where, you know, you can reach out to them directly when you have ideas, when you need to validate. You, you need a you need easy access um, to these customers. Um, sometimes that may mean going through the field or the sales team. Right, depending on how big your company is or what resources they have. Sometimes sales are the, the closest to the customer. Now be wary, you, you want to hear directly from the customer. You don't want to hear from the sales <laughs> team. But I think, you know, so so that's number one is like, you know, um, using a, a user research resource to kind of guide you and figuring out like what's the right way. Um, and then two, actually figuring out what that program looks like so you have easy, consistent access. Uh, and then three, I would say, you know, figure out... Um, a tool that can help you like a user testing.com or something like that, that can help, um, you know, build a, a muscle around, you know, how you get these customers to do interviews or get feedback. So, yeah, I think those would be my, my top three tips is like user research um, resource, building some sort of customer program, and then finding out what tool you can use to help do that research. Um, yeah, I think I would, I would probably start there. And then I guess the one other thing I would say is, like I said, sometimes you just have to be scrappy. When I was early in my HR app process at Microsoft when I was working on that, um, you know, as a recent MBA grad, I talked to a lot of recruiters. I happened to be working on a recruiter tool. You know what I did? I cold emailed some of the recruiters from the past, like, hey, I'm working on this tool. Would you mind talking to me for 30 minutes, right? And that was, you know, I didn't really ask anybody what the process is to talk to people. I just knew I needed to talk to recruiters. And so I went to my own network, right? And I just kind of figured it out. And so sometimes that's what you need to do, right? You, you just got to do whatever you can to start talking to customers. Um, so, you know, I guess that's, that's maybe that's the first thing I would say. I don't want to go back on my answer, but maybe that's the first thing I would say is like, just figure out how you can do it the most. And like I said, sometimes you do things in an unscalable way and then later you figure out the scale. And maybe the first part of my answer was more the scale, like the process and all that. But yeah. sometimes you just got to get out there and do it, you know, cold emails, <laughs> reaching out on LinkedIn, et cetera. No, for sure. Because I think there's there could be PMs listening who are in situations where they don't have the resources to be able to scale these things, like not be able to afford something like usertesting.com because for some Absolutely. companies that might be out of budget. Oh, um, you know what? Sorry to cut you off, but that just reminded me of one thing as well. Customer yeah. support. 
customer support, mm. huge resource, right? If you if you're if you're a software company, likely you have somebody doing customer support. I mean, I guess you you may you may be doing it yourself as a PM, but those are big opportunities. I don't I wouldn't advocate for like a customer that's angry <laughs> at you because they're they're talking to support to like go and say, hey, do you want to get feedback on this new thing? But that might be something you have to do too. So no, it's a, it's a great call out. It's a great call out. Um, like I know for our company. Like we, we do get a lot of good insights from customer support, but like traditionally we were built off of the backs of our partner channel. So like we didn't mm -hmm. have our own clients and yeah. we're starting to pivot that way. But to your point about scrappiness, like I've had to go into Facebook groups that are like tailored towards where our type of customers hang out to try to find people and like give them personally like $10 Amazon gift cards to chat with me. So, <laughs> yeah. so I, I can appreciate the, the advice to be scrappy because that, that's kind yeah. of been my life, but. That's awesome, man. No, that's great. That's, that's a great skill to have in your toolkit, man. I think it's, it's underestimated just to, just to like get it done attitude as a PM. You just have to have sometimes. For sure. For sure. Well, cool. Felix, I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing. I mean, um, from, from where you sit and like in the company that you're in, you get to see things that kind of work well let's say <laughs> and so like understanding like how what you've learned through the process of being there as well as kind of both ends of like on my side where we're kind of under resourced and, and on your side where there are things out there that you can use to help kind of automate some things i think that's really good to, to kind of hear both ends of it from from the listener standpoint so thanks for coming on and sharing my pleasure man thanks for having me man this was a great conversation i appreciate it that was felix watson jr product manager at microsoft before you go, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And I'd love it if you'd share this with friends, colleagues, and the broader PM community. And hey, if you're looking to get into product management, be sure to head over to the show notes and click on the link to get signed up for the April cohort of Jay Taylor's PM Career Accelerator. Thank you for joining me today, and I'll see you next week on Lessons in Product Management.